Six o'clock on a Wednesday evening, uh, a rather sultry and then rainy Wednesday. Good evening. It's the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley, and uh, we had a fair bit of craziness outside the weather today. Uh, up where I am, like poured rain about maybe an hour or so. I mean, like really, really poured rain. Uh, but it poured rain in two different places. Uh, and I, they say for two different reasons. I don't know whether it's true or not. Trading on the New York Stock Exchange was shut down for hours today. The exchange calls it coping with what appeared to be a technical glitch rather than an attack. It was the longest suspension of trading in the exchange in recent years. Uh, now, apparently... Uh, trading in the stocks listed on the New York Stock Exchange was able to continue on other stock exchanges like the NASDAQ. Trading resumed about an hour before the closing bell. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, call me a skeptic, okay? Uh, it's just uh, in my DNA. I had a guy a long time ago that worked on the street, fairly well-placed on Wall Street. And he said to me that when something goes wrong on Wall Street, and, and it could be any manner or any number of different things that can go wrong on the street. Somebody embezzles a boatload of money. Somebody, you know, the, the, the trading is suspended because there's something wrong with a system somewhere that they never really come out and are really forthcoming with the public about exactly what took place. You know, I don't want to say that that's what's going on here and that the stock exchange knows more than they're telling or that it's anything other than what they say it is just now. I'm just saying I'm a little skeptical given uh, some of the things I've been told about how Wall Street handles its bad business. Now, obviously, you know, when you have a recession, there's not a whole heck of a lot anybody can do about uh, mitigating that bad news. This apparently took brokers by surprise. According to the New York Times, uh, apparently one trader said that the ex exchange employees manually canceled 700,000 orders that were in the system. After canceling those orders, the exchange rebooted its systems, which was expected to take 45 minutes. The first problems appeared soon after the opening bell on Wednesday when orders for several smaller stocks failed to go through. At 11.32 a.m., the exchange announced it was shutting down all trading. Now, what's interesting about this uh, is that it came not long after United Airlines had to temporarily ground all of its flights following what it calls a technical issue. Uh, and point of fact, I think they said it was a problem with a computer network router. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, 
there are no, there's no indication, according to the Times, that these two incidents were related. But one investor noted that the problems were a reminder that in a paperless world, investors and citizens are not likely as safe as the markets assume. And by the way, when they shut down trading, they gave traders on the floor no warning before they did it, which is kind of sort of interesting. I didn't know this. The New York Stock Exchange is now owned by intercontinental exchange i don't know what that is uh but there's very little precedent for like shutting the whole thing off shutting the whole thing down like this um and uh, one wonders uh, they're saying it's not hackers it's not this it's not that um but one wonders just because a of the proximity between what happened on wall street and what happened with united airlines and the fact that they were both so adamant that this was not the work of any nefarious people or whatever. The, the stock exchange, ironically enough, uh, has not really explained in any detail exactly what took place, except some trades didn't go through. And there was, they found a glitch in the system. And they just had to shut the whole thing down. Uh, the chairwoman of the Securities Exchange and Exchange Commission, Mary Jo White, says, quote, we are in contact with the New York Stock Exchange and are closely monitoring the situation and trading in NYSE listed stocks. The president was also briefed uh, and others were monitoring the situation. Well, maybe it's all back to normal. Maybe there is no big thing to any of this. I, however, excuse me, sorry, am skeptical. Now, United Airlines grounded their planes for nearly two hours this morning because the company said there was a computer problem. They blamed, and this is interesting because anybody that's worked in an office of late, last five years or so, have heard this before. There was a problem with network connectivity. They ordered, by the way, the United's parent company, ordered a ground stop to United and Continental Flights uh, apparently, the systems came back late morning, and you know the flights are now cool, apparently. But the network issue had prevented the airline from dispatching planes. So here's what we got, party people. On the one hand, you have a glitch that shuts down the New York Stock Exchange, shuts down Wall Street. And another glitch shuts down an entire major airlines fleet like no we can't fly anybody anywhere says united's chief executive jeff smysick quote our people are working on a root cause analysis to tell us what it was so they don't know what it was you know they said it was a network connectivity issue but uh, i you know when they say they're trying to figure out what it is and then they say it's a network connectivity issue isn't that kind of contradictory if it was a network connectivity issue, then they don't have to say they're looking at the root cause. Or maybe they are. Maybe, maybe they should have just said they're, they're doing further investigating to figure out exactly what took place. Now, in United's case, it was the second time that they had to keep their planes from flying. Last month, 150 United flights were grounded because pilots could not gain access to their digital flight plans. In April, American Airlines delayed some of its flights because of a bug in its iPad software that meant pilots did not have accurate airport maps. Uh, maybe it's just the digital age that we live in. Maybe it's just a matter 
um, uh, not, you know, not having stuff on paper anymore. You know, I, I tend to watch some old TV every now and then. And, you know, you see people, uh, whether it's Lieutenant Columbo or Perry Mason or whoever, and they wrote everything down back in the day. And it's interesting that without any kind of paper trail with any of this stuff, all of the, I guess their only alternative is shut, shut the whole thing down. Just shut it down, which is exactly what they did. Moving along, the future of the Confederate battle flag at the South Carolina State House is being debated by the State House of Representatives. Now, it's interesting that earlier this afternoon, we're trying to bring you news that's up to date, y'all. Uh, a number of amendments to a bill that would remove the flag from Capitol grounds were considered and then rejected. The amendments were offered by a lawmaker hoping to 86 or at least slow the bill. All the bills, uh, all of these amendments were rejected by wide margin. And the Times says there's little clarity as to whether or not they're going to vote to get rid of the flag. Uh, you know, there's something about this that I just find absolutely curious, Okay. Why do people hold on so tight to this thing? Why do people, I mean, in an America, A, that celebrates winners as, you know, uh, as vociferously as we do, World War I, World War II, the U.S. women's soccer team, why in the deuce do some people in this country feel it necessary to celebrate losers? I don't, I, I don't understand it. We don't celebrate losers in any other context that I can think of, unless you're talking about the early 60s Mets. So why is it so important, so important to so many people in the old Confederacy that this flag, which wasn't even the Confederate flag, I have to emphasize that. We went over that last week. This that they worship. And by the way, you might want to ask yourself, because the flag that we know as the Confederate flag was actually the battle flag of the Army of Virginia. So why is it so important for South Carolina to fly it? I don't understand. Is it the South will rise again? Is that what it is? And see, to me, the whole question of slavery is a shibboleth. It's a diversion. It's not just about slavery. The Civil War, I don't care what anybody says, was fought over slavery and equally fought over white supremacy, maintenance of white supremacy. But the Confederate flag has always been about the maintenance of white supremacy. Even after the South lost the war, it was resurrected, the Confederate flag was, the, the battle flag of the Army of Virginia. It was resurrected by the Ku Klux Klan. Now, these clowns that are running around talking about the heritage and we're just trying to, uh, what do they call it? We're just trying to, to, to honor our grandpappy or whoever. They don't want to tell you that that flag was resurrected as a symbol of white supremacy. They can't say that. 
If they did, they'd get laughed out of whatever gigs they have in the South Carolina legislature. But it's true. It is absolutely true. And, you know, you got African-Americans in that South Carolina legislature. And they're trying to say, look, can you guys just, like, do the right thing? Especially in the wake of the massacre of the Charleston Nine. Can you all cut this nonsense out once and for all, finally? But they can't. They can't. And, you know, African-Americans, at least the legislators in South Carolina, are talking about the removal of the flag as part of a healing process. Part of a healing process. However, there are those who would not be healed. Example, Representative Michael A. Pitts, a Republican and retired cop from Lawrence, South Carolina, He wanted to upend the bill. He declared it. I'm not saying it. He did. He introduced a number of amendments that would have made modifications to the bill, from displaying various Confederate flags in a display case to a proposal to plant yellow jessamine, the state flower, where the flagpole now sits. He would get up, apparently earlier today, and talk for 20 minutes at a time, defending each amendment. And by the way, And I read this the other day. I almost fell out of my chair. One of these guys down there decided to use the precious time in the South Carolina legislature, I think he was a state senator, to go off into a whole thing about gay marriage and about how the the rainbow flag, which has represented the LGBT community across the country, was some flag of oppression. Of course, you know, I guess maybe due to the way they run things down there, he never had to explain why he decided to spend time that was supposed to be about a debate over the Confederate flag debating the blinking gay marriage issue. I'm sorry, not the blinking gay marriage issue, the gay marriage issue. But they find all kinds of stuff. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, He also, oh, no, this is another guy, Mike Ryhall, raised a practical concern. As written, he said the legislation would allow only for the flying of the American and South Carolina flags and thus outlaw a number of flags on the grounds that are on the Capitol grounds. That is an honor, the veterans of various branches of the armed services. He said lawmakers had allowed, quote, outside groups to get involved in the state matter and, quote, rushed a solution that was itself problematic. Representative Gilda Cobb-Hunter, who's a Democrat, who's African-American, followed Ryall and said the legislation did protect the armed forces flag. We indeed have a clean bill that has been sent over from the Senate. It was not inartfully drawn. Apparently, they just decided that during a lunch break a few hours ago, they're going to keep debating this. They're going to keep debating this issue. Beating, actually not beating, bludgeoning a dead horse. And I, you know, I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. 
you know, suppose somebody said, okay, well, you want to keep the Confederate flag up there? Let's put the red, black, and green up there, too. They'd probably raise pure D <clears throat> heck about that. Last week, we talked a bit about Greece. And Greece now, apparently, has a big gun to its head. European leaders have given them until Sunday to reach an agreement to save the economy from catastrophe after an emergency summit meeting on Tuesday ended without the Athens government offering a substantive new proposal to resolve its debt crisis. I think that's been corrected. I think they have offered a proposal. The president of the European Council says, quote, the situation is really critical. And unfortunately, we can't exclude the black scenarios of no, no agreement. Why do I have to call it the black scenario? The bankruptcy of Greece and the insolvency of its banking system could happen. And that means great pain for the Greek people. Like they haven't gone through great pain up until now. They got an unemployment rate of 25%, the same as the United States during the Great Depression. The youth unemployment rate is 50%. And, and you're just talking about great pain that's coming? They're already in great pain. And part of the reason why these people are so obstinate is because they don't want to do the one thing that might give Greece a fighting chance, and that is forgive the debt. They won't do it. And they won't do it on account of their bankers who helped Greece get into debt in the first place. I read a very interesting article about this. Uh, fairly recently. And they kind of went point by point and step by step and showed that it was bankers and a Greek government that at the time uh, felt it had no alternative but to take this bailout money that got Greece into this problem. I believe that they, they could probably, you know, figure out a way to settle it. The, what people are worried about here is, uh, you know, they say it's about, you know, uh, other economies losing billions of dollars. I just wonder if they're really worried about profit. You know, um, and, and to me, the other part of this that is a little bit obnoxious is the setting of deadlines by these people. See, because behind these deadlines, behind the gun that is being pointed at Greece's head, is a desire among some, maybe many in Europe, and probably even the United States, to get rid of this current government. Alexis Tsipras, they want to get rid of the guy. Now, he's only been in office about five months. I don't know what they expected him to do, wave a magic wand or agree to all of their conditions. I don't know what they expected him to do. But because he hasn't waved his magic wand and dealt with Greece's debt in five months, it's time for, they want him gone. They want him gone. Now, here's the problem with that. Greece elected him democratically. People got together, just like we do here, and we, you know, have a vote. And Tsipras was the winner, the clear winner. 
They had that referendum over the weekend. Again, a lot of people didn't want to see it happen. But the Greek people voted in a referendum to reject, I emphasize the term, reject the terms that the bankers and the European Union had apparently set up. No, we ain't doing it. We are not doing it. Now, maybe because rooting for the underdog is in my DNA, I was glad they did reject it. You know, how do you say to people who are already hurting, do you know that they can only, uh, for the last, I don't know how long, a couple of weeks at least, nobody in Greece has been able to withdraw more than 60 euros out of an ATM machine, 60. Now imagine what would happen in this country if they said, well, nobody can withdraw more than $60 from an ATM machine. There'd be riots in the streets. But what's troubling is that these, these people get together and they say to a country that's already hurting, The only way we can fix this is if you hurt some more. Get rid of pensions for people who've worked all their lives. Privatize industries, which, by the way, you know, when industries are privatized, government industries, you know what that translates to for ordinary people? Layoffs. They're not talking about privatizing as a way to create jobs. That's not what they're talking about. They are talking about punishing ordinary people for the foolishness and the profit motive of bankers. That's what they're, I could be wrong, but as far as I'm concerned, that is what, excuse me, what they are doing. And, you know, there's a critical moment, deadlines have come and gone, but, you know, now they're, look, uh, you know, if this doesn't work out, Greece may be banned from the euro. You know, and, and you know they're, they're they're putting together all these scenarios, uh, and you know they 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 really aren't happy. And, and this is from the New York Times. Uh, Jean Claude Juncker, president of the European Commission, the European Union's executive arm. He expressed fury at a barrage of verbal attacks on Greece's European creditors by officials of Syriza, the party led by Tsipras. Now, you know, they won Greek elections in January. It's now July. And they expected this government. See, the government was elected because they rejected the austerity. Greeks don't want austerity. And they certainly do not want it forced on them. You know, sputtering with rage, Jean-Claude Juncker, who are they and who do they think I am? He says he's against Greece leaving the euro. He says, I cannot prevent it if the Greek government is not doing what we expect it to do to respect the dignity of the Greek people. Respect the dignity of the Greek people? What, are you kidding me? Are you drunk? You beat the Greek people down. 
and what you're planning on doing would beat them down even further. Well, things will get better in a year or two. Yeah, right. And what are people supposed to do during that year or two until things get better? What are they supposed to do? And see, the, the, the worst part of this, as far as I'm concerned, is the notion that anybody who fights austerity, and this isn't just in Greece, this is anywhere, anybody who fights austerity is considered lazy and shiftless and the pensions are too high and the workers have too much time off, but blame it all, as we see in many other cases, on the workers on the people in the society who are, by the way, least able to defend themselves. They don't own, own any media. The Greek people don't own any media. And it's true here, too. Beat down the workers because they can't respond. I mean, you know, we do have the Progressive Radio Network and other progressive outlets that do provide for a response. But, you know, you, you're talking about bringing a, gun, a, a knife to a gunfight. You can't beat people with guns if they got mortars. And that's what's happening to the Greek people. Now, when he was asked, uh, or no, it wasn't even he, it was Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany. And she made it clear that the Eurozone leaders were determined to set a very high bar for Athens before the Thursday deadline. Asked if the Eurozone would consider easing the debt burden on Greece, a key demand by Cyprus's government. Ms. Merkel emphasized that Greece would first be required to convince its lenders that it stood ready to meet the conditions of a new bailout. Now, what would that be? And Merkel, by the way, added that the decision to hold a referendum only made matters worse. Only made democracy made things worse. Leaving it up to the public only made things worse. That should tell you volumes about who's who and what's what here. By the way, we have phone availability for you. If you want to give a call, our number is 646 490 5448. 646 490. Five four four eight. I know a number of you have been Facebooking me and, and asking when the phones will be back up. It's been a very difficult process for the good people at PRN to get the phones back up and running. So they are. So if you want to call, please feel free. 646 is the number. 490 uh, this Greek thing just makes me so angry. It really does. You know what else makes me angry? Articles that tend to obfuscate certain facts that everybody took as a given two months ago. Such it is with a New York Times article that says, why Bernie Sanders' momentum is not built to last. And it starts out by saying Bernie Sanders is surging. He's got palpable momentum. Now, you know, the, the article goes on to rationalize 
that Hillary Clinton has a huge lead among moderate and conservative Democrats, white and non-white alike, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the fundamental question here is, who would have thunk, who would have thunk it that Bernie Sanders would have the momentum he now has? Never mind whether or not he can keep it going. The fact of the matter is he's touched a nerve. And I was talking with somebody yesterday, and they put their finger right on it. My friend Gus said, you know why Bernie Sanders read? Because he's talking about middle-class people. He's really talking about middle-class people, working people, people who have been squeezed by this recession, and the squeeze, by and large, has not stopped. Yeah, I mean, you can say what you will about it being over and the unemployment rate dropping and uh, jobs created, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Go over those labor numbers till you're blue in the face. And many people do, okay? But the fact of the matter is Bernie Sanders has touched a nerve. Now, he may not have touched a nerve among the rank and file of the Democratic primary electorate, which is what this article says. However, and whoever wrote this, I forgot who it is. The person's name was on the article. I, 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 for some reason, I don't have it here. What people don't say is that primaries bring out the faithful in the Democratic Party. Not necessarily the more moderate or conservative Democrats, but the more liberal slash progressive Democrats. Now, what's uh, revealing about this piece and what he had to acknowledge, because it was a he, Bernie Sanders is doing nearly as well as Barack Obama did among liberal voters in 2008. That makes him competitive in relatively liberal contests like the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primary. Now, you know, the, the, when Bernie Sanders talks about reigning in the excesses of Wall Street, which can't stay open all day, but <laughs> let, let me not dog them out. On average, polls in Iowa and New Hampshire last month showing Mr. Mrs. Clinton, show Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Sanders tied among self-identified liberals. Last week, a Quinnipiac poll in Iowa showed him leading Mrs. Clinton among very liberal voters, 47 to 43. Now, there are those who say, well, Hillary Clinton's a liberal Democrat. And at the end of the day, that's how she's going to be portrayed, assuming she wins the nomination. Whoever runs against her among the legions of people who think they got a shot, I, you know, I've lost track of how many Republicans are lining up to run. But they're going to portray her as a liberal Democrat. And trust me, if Bernie Sanders wins the Democratic nomination, they are going to call him a socialist. That'll be the first thing out of people's mouths. He's a socialist. Well, Bernie's never denied that. I want to get him on here because I, I want you all to talk to him. Or at least listen to him if you can't talk to him. Because he's really a really brilliant, brilliant man. And to me, we are, as a nation, better off having him as a candidate. Now, you know, you can say what you will about whether or not you think he's better than Hillary Clinton, whether you'd vote for him before Hillary Clinton. Da -da 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 -da. 
But the nation is better off that Bernie Sanders is making this run. I don't know if you can say that about two of the guys who are running on the Republican side. But Bernie Sanders, he is the real deal. It's 28 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock, about halfway through the program. We're going to take a very quick break. I'm going to uh, reboot my jets, much as the stock exchange did earlier, United Airlines did earlier. And we'll come back and we'll talk about some more stories right here on the Mark Riley Show. Stay with us. It's 27 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. It's the Mark Riley Show. I am he. I'm rebooted. My jets are ready. So let's do this, shall we? That murder case in San Francisco. And, you know, you can't avoid talking about this because it's become Donald Trump's favorite talking point. In that case, for those of you who don't know about it, a Mexican laborer was charged yesterday in the fatal shooting of an American woman on a pier in San Francisco. Uh, He was apparently back and forth over the U.S. border, U.S.-Mexican border, numerous times. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, apparently with impunity. Now, it turns out the gun that he used to shoot this poor woman, Catherine Steinle, who, you know, was no more guilty than to be walking with her father and a friend on Pier 14 near the ferry building in San Francisco. Uh, The guy who allegedly shot her, uh, Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez, has seven felony convictions. He had been deported from this country five times. So, of course, the logical question, without painting all Mexicans as rapists and murderers, is how did that happen? How did he get back into this country to shoot a woman on a pier in San Francisco? The gun apparently belonged to a federal agent. And of course, you know, Donald Trump, yet another example of why we must secure our border immediately. And see, the other thing, and Donald Trump made a great deal about this too, San Francisco is considered, I believe, a safe city or, or a city where local officials <coughs> excuse me, are prohibited from cooperating with federal law enforcement people who are looking 
to uh, snatch up undocumented immigrants. And uh, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. Not the say, not the refugee city thing was a mistake, but the question of how he got in and out of here. You know, when, when in a country that will stop a 12-year-old kid because his name is the same as somebody who's on a watch list and keep the kid off a flight, and you can't stop somebody coming to this country five, I guess, six different times since he was deported five times. Why and how? Now, apparently, uh, according, again, to published report, the lapse in this man's case, who, by the way, is also known as Jose Inez Garcia Zarate and several other names, did not occur at the border. After being deported in June of 2009, he tried to return three months later but was stopped by agents at a crossing in Eagle Pass, Texas. He was then prosecuted for a felony of illegal entry and served almost four years in a federal prison. When he finished his sentence, the prison sent him to San Francisco based on a warrant for a 20-year-old felony marijuana charge. Within a day, the local court in San Francisco dismissed those charges. Lopez Sanchez, according to officials in San Francisco, stayed in jail for three weeks so the authorities could verify that he was eligible for release. He was freed April 15th. That point, at, at that point, according to this report, is where the communication between San Francisco law enforcement and federal law enforcement broke down. Federal officials say that as soon as they learned of Mr. Lopez Sanchez's transfer from federal prison to San Francisco, they issued a request to notify them when he would be released. An order for his deportation was ready. A spokeswoman for ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, said, quote, we are just asking for a heads up, a phone call. Now, you're going to start getting those after this. We did not hear anything until the day this young woman was killed. So the guy who's been on the street since April, after serving four years, and after being freed on a 20-year-old felony marijuana warrant, 20 years. Fact of the matter is, I would have thought, logically, that the minute he got out of jail, after the four years, and he was serving that four years in a federal prison in California. Why did they, oh, okay, they sent him to San Francisco to deal with this warrant. At that point, he should have been deported. As a matter of fact, they should have deported him, never mind the, the marijuana beef. Deport him the minute he got out of stir. That would have dealt with this. A San Francisco ordinance that was passed two years ago broadly restricts the police from cooperating with immigration agents. The sanctuary law has helped law enforcement by enhancing trust between the police and residents who are immigrants without documents. Uh, the sheriff here said the city's ordinance allowed him to respond to the federal or, uh, authorities only when he had a court order or warrant. The sheriff said, quote, they had his rap sheet and they were well aware of our policies. The natural question is, why wouldn't they follow through with a warrant for this suspect? It is a horrible and senseless act. I, I don't think anybody would 
disagree with that. But the question of why and how this guy slipped through the cracks, that, it demands an answer. It doesn't demand an answer that includes all Mexicans being rapists and murderers. That's just blather. That's just trash talk. From a master trash talker, I might add. But this is not a question. They, what, what The border people did their job. They busted the guy when he tried to come in here. So that part worked. So I don't know what Trump's talking about on that level. This was a snafu between local law enforcement and the feds after the guy had done four years. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, Lopez Sanchez said he had taken sleeping pills and doesn't remember exactly what happened. He said, when I go to court, I'm going to plead guilty. I want to have the punishment I deserve as quickly as possible. Uh, the family of this young lady, Ms. Steinle, they're, they're much like the good people in Charleston, South Carolina. They're not looking for vengeance here. It would be easy for us to hate and be angry, but Kate wouldn't want that. That's what her brother said. Probably a Christian, okay? Probably a really good Christian, just like those people in South Carolina. Now, you want to talk about Christians and someone that shows a manifest lack of Christian charity. This is amazing. This is an amazing story. You know, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer dissented from the Supreme Court's ruling on lethal injection. And he, in that dissent, articulated his problems with the death penalty. Among those problems was what he called an arbitrariness in application, which included how simple geography can determine whether someone convicted of murder would be sentenced to death. Between 2004 and 2009, this according to Justice Breyer, not me, just 29 counties, fewer than 1% of the counties in the country, accounted for approximately half of all death sentences imposed nationwide. I'm going to say that again. 29 counties, fewer than 1% of all the counties in America, accounted for about half of all death sentences imposed nationwide. Well, there's a place called Caddo Parish in Louisiana. Now, Capital punishment has kind of declined fairly steeply in Louisiana. In the early 1980s, Caddo County accounted for fewer than 5% of the state's death sentences. But now, this parish accounts for nearly half of the death sentences over the past five years. Even nationally, from 2010 to 2014, more people were sentenced to death per capita in that county in Louisiana than in any other county in the United States among the four counties with four or more death sentences in that time period. Apparently, the reason why Caddo County has become, Cato County, I don't know how you pronounce it, why they become such an outlier, one guy, his name is Dale Cox. He's the acting district attorney in Caddo County. 
He secured more than a third of Louisiana's death sentences over the last five years. He says he was at one time opposed to the death penalty, but as they say, not no more. He has doubled down on a statement he made to the Shreveport Times back in March. The capital punishment is primarily and rightly about revenge, and the state needs to kill more people. That's right. Capital punishment is primarily and rightly about revenge, and the state of Louisiana needs to kill more people. Says Cox, quote, retribution is a valid societal interest. What kind of society would say that it's okay to kill babies and eat them, and in fact, we can have parties where we kill them and eat them, and you're not going to forfeit your life for that? If you've gotten to that point, you are no longer a society. Now, he said he hadn't seen any case involving cannibalism. But he said there's been an increase in savagery in murders, I guess, in, uh, in this county. Is. And that's why he thinks more people ought to die. Now, you have to start asking yourself, who is prosecuting death penalty? Who are, who are the prosecutors that get all these death penalty convictions? It's a relatively small number of people when you start looking at the number of prosecutors across the country. Uh, Lynn Abraham, when she left the office of district attorney in Philadelphia, she gotten 45 death sentences in 19 years. So she left only three death sentences. So what ends up happening, according to some, and one person is quoted in this article, is that you have a personality-driven death penalty. This is, this is deep. One guy, a guy who publicly says, and when asked to repeat it, says it again, that Louisiana ought to kill more people. And he's setting the example for that. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Most of the capital cases are poor, poor people and black people. In a part of the state with a deep history of racism. Quote, He's got a loaded gun, and he's pointing it at a lot of people. That's according to Ross Owen, a former prosecutor and U.S. attorney who now practices defense law in Shreveport, Louisiana. Something has to be done about this guy. Somebody has to, you know, get these people under control, get this guy under control. I, mean, I, I don't know if he's elected. He's an acting district attorney. I don't know if that means, like, you know, maybe he has to, he got to find a way to remove him. Find, you know, uh, the First Amendment gives him the right to say, we need to kill more people. He's got the right to say it. Nobody's saying he doesn't have the right to say it. But the question becomes, does he have the right to do anything about it? And in this case, He's been doing something about it. 
the numbers are, are ridiculous. And it also speaks to Justice Breyer's contention that where you commit a murder, and under what, obviously under what circumstances, but where you commit a murder is a big determining factor in whether or not you get the death penalty. Now, in addition to where, there's also your race, the race of the victim, which is very important. And I'm not saying very important by any subjective measure. Just look at the numbers of the people who are executed. Even white people who are executed are usually executed for killing other white people. So this is an untenable situation. And, you know, I am unalterably opposed to the death penalty. I I just, I'm not down. I'm sorry. Not my thing. I know that others may disagree. When I was on terrestrial radio, I used to get into debates with a lot of people. A lot of people. Who said, no, no, you're wrong. If you take a life, you should be prepared to forfeit your life. Well, our next story might give you just a little bit of pause. Uh, Maybe the name Shabaka Shakur doesn't ring a bell with you. It didn't ring a bell with me when I first saw this story, but it's an important story. Shabaka Shakur was wrongfully convicted, and he was released from prison last month after being locked up for 27 years. He was convicted of a double homicide. His conviction was overturned by a judge, and the indictment was dismissed by Brooklyn prosecutors. So um, this had a happy ending, thanks in part to my good friend Ron Kuby, who's a really good guy, and gave Shabaka Shakur a job. He's a paralegal. He started working in Ron Kuby's law office. Ron Kuby, of course, worked to get him released from prison. Now, he's one of those guys, and, and some of you may remember the name Louis Scarcella, Scarcella, excuse me, not Scar, Scarcella. Louis Scarcella is the uh, NYP, former NYPD detective who has had a number of cases he worked on, cases that sent people to jail for extraordinary periods of time. And the allegation is, he's never been prosecuted, but the allegation is that he fabricated evidence He coerced confessions. He did a bunch of other stuff. Says Ron Kuby, Shakur has insight into those who are wrongfully convicted. He knows how to conduct these cases from the ground level. Why, you might add? Because he filed 13 motions when he was incarcerated. He learned through my own trial. He said, I learned on my own through trial and error. Now, you know, that's deep. That somebody could actually file motions based on sussing out information through trial and error. That's incredible. So congratulations to Shabaka Shakur. Glad to hear that he's working. And uh, thanks to Ron Kuby for, uh, you know, really reaching out and giving the man a job. You know, and, and you, know, you think about these things. He was in jail for 27 years. Khalif Browder was in jail for three years, never charged with anything, never got his life back together, and ended up hanging himself. 
Think about it. Think about it. Think about this, too, because I have long said, and I've said it on this program, that one of the things the public has a right to know is where the guns come from that end up on our streets and they end up killing people. And we see in San Francisco that this gun that was used to kill this poor woman came from a federal agent. That, that's about as far as they've gone with it. They haven't really said, like, how the man got the gun, under what circumstances did the guy lose it and not report it. They didn't say a word, just like it belonged to a federal agent. Thanks for sharing. Well, there's a store in Georgia called the Arrowhead uh, Pawn Shop. It's in Jonesboro, Georgia. Y'all should remember this especially our friends in law enforcement, because two guns purchased from that store have now killed three police officers nationwide, including Wenjan Lu and Rafael uh, Ramos back in December in Bed-Stuy. That gun, a silver semi-automatic Taurus, was bought at that pawn shop. A Glock 9mm bought from the same store was fired by an ex-con during a shootout with police in Omaha, Nebraska on May 20th, the cop this time was uh, the cop that was killed this time was a 29-year-old officer who was a day away from taking uh, leave to care for her newborn child. Investigators from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosive traced the gun that killed her, Carrie Orozco, to that same pawn shop, according to documents filed in the Northern District of Georgia. It had been purchased by the alleged gunman Marcus Wheeler's girlfriend, Jalita Janera Johnson, just a month before the gunfire in Omaha. She uh, did, uh, Ms. Johnson, indicated in paperwork that she was buying the gun for herself. She's been charged with federally, uh, with, on federal charges, with making false statements. In 2010, authorities named the Arrowhead Pawn Shop as a top source for illegal out-of-state guns in New York City. How does this place stay open? I ask you, how does this place stay open? You know, our, our friends in the police department, y'all ought to get a contingent of people down there to Jonesboro, Georgia, and y'all need to protest in front of that shop. Two of your number, people that moaned and cried and weeped about, and rightfully so, about the death of these two police officers, Officer Lou and Officer Ramos. Well, now we know where the gun came from. And now we know. Now, you know, the, the person that shot them is the person that bears the ultimate responsibility, the ultimate responsibility. However, this Arrowhead pawn shop also bears some responsibility. No excuse. No excuse whatsoever. It's part of that what's called the iron pipeline. And, you know, you can bring out statements and say, you know, we, we, we wish Georgia would do something about it. Da -da 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 -da. Somebody needs to put heat on the Arrowhead Pawn Shop so that they tighten up. If they're going to stay open, I don't think they should. I, I, I'm stunned there's no federal law that says if, if you sell a gun to somebody that ends up killing a cop, 
you forfeit your right to do business. But that hasn't happened. Here's an exclusive from the Daily News. Donald Trump. Oh, God, I have to mention him again. He blasts efforts to renew contracts that he has with the city of New York because the mayor has said he's actually reviewing those contracts. And he wants, he doubles down. He doubles down on everything. He says he wants the city of New York to thank him for amazing worth. He says, any attempt to terminate my business relationship with the city will be a clear and unequivocal violation of my First Amendment protection. Okay. But, you know, know, I had a dream the other week when Trump first came up with his Mexican rapists and murderers thing. Imagine what would happen. Because there's a Mexican guy who could buy every asset Donald Trump has. One guy. His name is Carlos Slime. If he's not the richest man in the world, he's very close to the richest man. Imagine if Carlos Slime got pissed off enough. So you know what? I'm going to buy every every building, every golf course, everything that Donald Trump owns. And by the way, he could do it. It wouldn't break him. Slime got a lot more money than Trump. Could you imagine? Could you imagine Slime saying, okay, well, all of the Trump holdings, we are taking down the name Trump from everything. It's no longer going to be Trump Plaza or Trump Tower or Trump, 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 Trump. Which, by the way, shows an egocentrism that would, I think, disqualify him to be president. But, hey, that's just me. I think Carlos Slime, it was just a dream. I I saw a picture of the guy once, so I kind of sort of know a little bit what he looks like. I would just say, why not Carlos Slime just buy these chumps off or buy this particular chump off? And just get rid get rid of everything that mentions his name. Because he's obscene. You know, uh, there's an obscenity to Donald Trump. There's an unseemliness, a tastelessness, a lack of class to Donald Trump. That just, you know, it's ridiculous. Well, look, it's time for me to go. I want to thank Jason Taubenfeld, who's been at the controls, done a great job, as always. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. We'll be back to do it all over again next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead.